0: Is the WP Elevation Podcast, helping WordPress consultants elevate. So I'm just a little bit nervous now because we're about to go and meet one of my web design heroes, Andy Clark, from Stuff and Nonsense. So here we go. Yes! <laughs> yes, yes. <It> landed <laughs> yes. Mr. <laughs> How are you? Lovely to meet you after all this time. In yeah, three dimensions. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. That cool. I do. Yeah, I do. We should, You? You play? Yeah. We should have a game. Um, record a very brief chat. Yeah. And then um, we'll find somewhere to go and have some much. G'day, Troy Dean here from WP Elevation, and I'm very excited to have with me here in the WP Elevation office here, Andy Clark from Stuff and Nonsense. Hey, Andy, how are you? I'm all right. I'm it's an absolute pleasure to meet you. Yeah, in the flesh this time. Thank you very much for coming in. Um, Now, uh, Andy, as everyone here knows, has been one of my web design heroes for a long time without uh, putting you on the spot, is actually one of the reasons I'm still doing what I'm doing today was um, I started out reading .NET magazine that you were contributing to. Tell me how that came about originally.
1: Do you know, I can't remember back in the day. Um, Because I was one of the, the early people that were designing and writing CSS, so there was only a small pool of, of, of people loosely loosely termed talent i suppose um that they could have and there was they, i think they set up an, like an advisory committee just to like they changed direction at the beginning i remember back in this is 97 mm-hmm. literally um like right at the early days net magazine used to do these this thing called uh, like site of the month yep and it was like a, a user reader contributing thing and they actually featured my site i think it was september or october 1997 my first ever website was in dotnet magazine wow Um, because it was really a consumer mag and then they shifted the focus they shifted it to be much more kind of a professional magazine and you know i was one of those people that they asked if i'd be a you know an advisory board member but i never really did
0: anything Right. Um, so one of the things, Gin's just having a look at my collection of, there we go, .NET magazines. I've got a whole bunch of them over there. I subscribed 1997. No, 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 not, not from 1997. They would have been from, um, when were they from? They would have been from, I reckon, around about 2006 onwards yeah. was when I was really uh, uh, learning my way. One of the things that occurred to me was there was this whole thing about standards, about web standards, about coding to particular standards. For those who are watching this and who don't know why standards are important, why do standards matter? Well, I suppose you've got to go back
1: to before we really stuck to standards in terms of development and when i started i remember the first books i bought in terms of web design back in kind of 96 97 and i can remember crazy things like uh, dhtml madness or (laughs) magic or madness it was madness Um, i mean imagine a lot of people wouldn't even know what dhtml was Um, And it stood for dynamic HTML. It was like a buzzword, like Ajax or responsive design or something like that. It was just a kind of a a, a term for things. But at the time, when we wanted to write something um, in HTML or CSS or JavaScript, you had to literally write two versions. I mean, there was the Internet Explorer DOM, and there was the Netscape DOM. And you had to literally write everything twice. And all of the books at the time literally had sort of two halves you know they teach you how to do it on one side and then it would go ah and to get this working in netscape 4 then we've got to do it another way and you know we had browser sniffing and all that kind of stuff user agent sniffing so it was it was a you know a, a troubling time because it just sucked up so much time and money and you know wasn't sustainable hmm. so it wasn't until uh you know, designers, particularly people like Jeffrey Zeldman, said, "Listen, this is just crazy. We can't continue working in this way. There is a standard. You know, there are standards for HTML. There are standards for CSS and for for, for JavaScript, um, and they happen to be W3C standards. Why don't we just literally sort of centre development around uh, those?" standards and and that's what happened Mm. um and it if it hadn't have been for people like jeffrey and other people at the web standards project we'd still be doing everything twice Mm. because all of the browser makers they used proprietary standards almost like as business tools you know to get commercial advantage ah well if you use this technology your website will look much better in our browser than it does in another browser Mm. and they use these things for competitive advantage so that that would be exactly where we'd be now if it wasn't
0: that. And I guess one of the um, one of the advantages of standards too is when you're collaborating on a project or if you take a project over that another developer's been working on or another developer takes over a project you've been working on, if you're doing everything right and you're working to standards and commenting your code, it's much easier to take over a project than to try and reverse engineer what someone's done before you start. Well, that's that's the difference between
1: what we would think of as web standards in terms of HTML and CSS and JavaScript and coding or professional standards. So, I mean, it's actually incredibly hard still. Nobody really likes to take over a project that somebody else has worked on because, you know, things aren't done quite your way and you've got to spend quite a lot of time figuring out how somebody else has worked. And that's why, particularly in larger teams, it's really important to get those kind of internal standards down. Uh, my friend harry roberts who 's speaking at a conference here in in Melbourne this week, he does consultancy just on managing CSS for large projects and large teams because you know if you 've got a lot of people working on the same code base, then how you write the CSS is really important
0: mm-hmm. um, So tell us what you 're doing out here in Australia i mean you 're a long way from home, right
1: <laughs> Yeah, we came, ho- we came here because it 's the home of master chef <laughs> master chef australia it 's the only reason we 're here.
0: You're not joking either, are you? Because we were just chatting with you and Sue about your love for MasterChef Australia. Why do you think it's the best MasterChef in the world? It is the best MasterChef in the world. I know, it wasn't the first MasterChef because it did come a long time ago. I think
1: it was like in the 80s we had MasterChef. What was that guy called? Was it Lloyd Grossman that used to... It was, yeah, Lloyd Grossman. who was like a TV food critic that started MasterChef back in the, I don't know, the 80s or something. And then it disappeared and it came back in the format now. And... The British MasterChef is just really mean. Right. And you've got this b- literally pretty much the same format, but you've got a group of judges, one of which I think is Australian. Right. Um, but they're just really horrible to the contestants. And it's not, a, not an interesting show to watch. It's like torture. <laughs> so we've watched a few. You know, we've watched um, a little bit of uh, New Zealand MasterChef. But it's, that's—it's just a pale imitation of the Aussie version. Right. Um, we caught an episode of South African Master Chef once. That was—that was like things that people shouldn't eat. Right. I mean, it's like. <laughs> What is that? No, we don't want to eat that. Um, And then I just, I just imagine. We haven't watched any others, but I can just imagine what other Master Chefs are like around the world. You can imagine what the Icelandic Master Chef is like. It's like, what are you cooking? Fish. Or Canadian Master Chef
0: would just be really boring, wouldn't it? Because you know Canadians. I'm sure our our New Zealand and Canadian counterparts will be commenting underneath this video with lots of feedback. Um, um, And also, is there something about the Australian uh, location that is appealing in in the Australian MasterChef? Yeah, I mean, yeah,
1: they do have nice
0: locations. I mean,
1: they moved, actually, it used to be filmed in Sydney, and I think it switched to Channel 10. How do I know all this stuff about an Aussie TV food (laughs) programme? But they moved it, and they film it in Melbourne now. Um, So you do get to see, you know, different things. And they, they... go out to places like Margaret River where we've just been um so yeah it's a it's a great ambassador show we learn everything that we know about Aussie culture from MasterChef and Neighbours right
0: that is frightening in itself isn't it yeah. right um all right so apart from MasterChef you are actually out here doing some business right yeah business kind of
1: yeah we're we're here for, to speak at a conference and to do some workshops and teach some css so what's the, what's the conference you're speaking at we well, I spoke at Respond in Sydney, which mm-hmm. is uh, web directions John all web directions podcast yeah. uh, podcast conference yeah. um, last week in Sydney, which was a really, really good event. He had some great local speakers and a couple of you know really good international speakers and me right um, <laughs> so it was fun it was fun it was a, a really nice Um, friendly event i mean the atmosphere of the conference you know sometimes you go to events that are uh, you know large and very kind of business-like and sometimes you go to small events and you know they can leave you feeling a little bit cold but this was really nice it had just the right atmosphere
0: uh what sort of numbers were there how many people turned out because web directions particularly they like traditionally i've known that they have really good conferences they're quite expensive ticket price their conferences they're not your average 200 hundred dollar conference are they Mm.
1: Well, we we were talking about this sort of, you know, before and after. I mean, they I think they had, I can't remember the exact numbers, but let's just say 150. I mean, sure. it wasn't, wasn't a big, big room of people. Um, and, yeah, they're, they're not the cheapest events in the world, but I think that's a good thing because mm. we were, again, we were talking about this after the event. Sometimes we've got to realize that for an industry to... Be mature. You have to do things to a professional level, mm. and that costs money. And yeah, there are there is a place for smaller community events. You know, not for profits. Or uh, and we, you know, as an industry, we have a real history of giving stuff away. So it's mm. not like people are being, you know, ungenerous. Um, but if you're going to bring people in, if you're going to get the correct caliber of speakers, and you want to actually have those people making a really great contribution then you know sometimes that costs money Mm. and it's very important i think as an industry that we have events that are at that kind of top tier because it does the whole industry a lot of good um and you know we need to remember that it's it's for for some people it's a business as well you know Mm. it's it's a business for people taking the time out to actually attend these events because you know it costs if if you're a freelancer it's going to cost you time away from client work if it's if you're working for a business then they're paying you to be there um but also from the other aspect as well you know it's 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 expensive and it's risky to put on events of the size of something like respond and you know you, you mustn't ever forget that um You know, people are taking huge risks when it comes to actually, you know, putting on an event like that. Yeah.
0: I was uh, fortunate last week to be up at Content Marketing World in Sydney on a media pass as a podcaster. Uh, I was invited up there by Joe Polizzi and I managed to interview a whole bunch of speakers up there and put together a special episode for the podcast. And that was the thing that was rolling around in the back of my head the whole time I was there is, you know, they're in a beautiful, like the ballroom at the -the Sheraton-on-the-Park in Sydney in a beautiful venue. The catering was amazing. It was a top shelf event. And I, I thought, you know you put on that event i wouldn't want to be the night before not having sold enough tickets because it's a huge financial risk and they flew a whole bunch of them out here from the states to present so you're right it is it is um a lot of risk involved what what, what were you actually uh, speaking on at uh, at respond i was the
1: counterpoint i think to everybody else that has spoken throughout the, the the day or two days um I was talking about creative soul and the idea that we've got to balance all of our conversations about technical matters and process and performance and particularly around responsive design and around user experience design as well. There's been a huge kind of shift towards UX over the last couple of years. And actually, I think that in that process, we've lost certain aspects of creativity and the work that we're seeing now is dry and sterile and doesn't have it might be beautifully produced it might be you know beautifully responsive or technically proficient or you know from a ux point of view classically easy to use but it doesn't make it memorable it doesn't make it delightful Mm. and that's what i was really sort of sounding a a word of caution about which is you know we need to have both of these things if you're going to make great work
0: Mm. let's not be boring huh
1: yeah. I mean, that's not, to, that's not to show too much disrespect, too much disrespect to people that, that concentrate on user experience, because, you know, all of these things are important. Um, but as I was saying to uh, one of the other speakers last week, it's like, if I wanted to make products, I'd have made, I'd, I'd design power drills, mm. That's what I'd make. I'd make hand tools or something. Mm. That's not what I do. If you want to design power drills, then brilliant. You know, we all need power drills that are easy to use. What I do is I create websites that sell the power drills. Yeah. And I don't mean just technically in terms of actually, you know, a UX, clicking the button and finding it easy. What makes you get excited about one particular brand over another, Mm. both in terms of, um, well, particularly in terms of art direction, which is one of the things I've been talking a lot about.
0: And uh, you're also running some workshops, some CSS workshops, while you're out here as well. What are you, what are you fundamentally teaching in those CSS workshops?
1: Same thing I've been teaching for years, really, right. which is that there's always cutting-edge technologies, particularly in CSS. And particularly now, we went through a real period where CSS was quite boring because we'd figured out all of the problems and we knew everything about CSS, now particularly with responsive design and some of the new things that are coming into the standards that it's it's exciting again we can do things in a different way um, and we mustn't be afraid of actually using that stuff now um, rather than you know waiting until it's supported in all browsers so i've been teaching things like flexbox and also a whole load of other css properties things like columns and border image and stuff like that that's been around for ages, but nobody uses. Mm. And they're really important in a responsive context.
0: Do you think it's going to get easy now that Internet Explorer has officially been retired?
1: (laughs) Ah, you mustn't give them a hard time. You must not give them a hard time. They've been doing really well. They've made a great browser over the last few years. And I've always had a lot of respect for the people at Microsoft, actually. I remember back in about 2007... I met a couple of the guys from Microsoft then. And they actually used my site as a, as a testing site for Internet Explorer 7. Because years ago, years ago, I had a, my Stuff and Nonsense site had two versions. It had a version that was for modern browsers. And then if Internet Explorer didn't support those selectors, then they would get a completely different version. Mm. It was all in black and white. Mm. And there was a whole load of stuff that we, that we used in there. And Microsoft used it as a reference site in their testing lab. Um, which was quite fun, and they were doing some good stuff then. They were really committed to standards, and they were really committed to you know a good browser. And they've only carried that on. So you mustn't give them too much stick.
0: <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, it's I find it too hard to resist. Um, was it you? Was it you, or was it Jeffrey Zeldman and someone else that did the CSS Swap Day, where you basically took each other's HTML and applied your no, own CSS? Who that was that? Was, that was Doug Bowman, right? Um, who,
1: up until recently, was creative director at Twitter. Um, and it was Dave Shea, Dave Shea, who was the guy behind the CSS Zen Garden back in the ah, day. And that was yes. another incredibly right. important project. <clears throat> and what they did, in fact, I mentioned it in my book, yeah. um, they, yeah, they literally swapped style sheets for a day and yeah. did this whole shtick where they'd stolen each other's designs by accident or something. And it was yeah. very funny. Yeah. But again, it was, a, it was designed to show that you could separate content and structure from presentation mm. um, to a certain extent it's never been you know completely possible and even then they had to swap a few class names around to uh, to make it work
0: mm. i spent hours exploring css Garden when i was starting out and just seeing you know how people when i was learning css when i was learning about imageless Backgrounds and all that kind of stuff and, and, and digging into people's CSS and seeing what they could do with it because it was one HTML file. It was one HTML and everyone applied their own CSS to it to come up with all these amazing different designs.
1: Well, it's 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 come back recently. I think
0: Typekit have rehosted
1: it and have taken over the the day to day running of it. I know my friend Trent Walton has been doing some work. He did a, a couple of designs on it relatively recently. But I know it, it sounds as if we're kind of like two old men just <laughs> sitting there reminiscing about the past. But actually, it's, well, it's you know, not far from the truth, is well, it? Really? It's really, not to be honest. It's t- it's completely, it's completely the truth. But it's actually really important because I think sometimes today we forget how tricky it was and how much people overcame. You know, you, we look back at something like uh, a list apart magazine. Mm. And 10 years ago, we were reading CSS articles, which were about turning an unordered list mm. into a series of tabs, mm. um, which... Doug Bowman wrote, or there was Dan Cedarholm. Uh, he did his faux columns article, which was basically let's just take a transparent GIF and or a graduated image, and then just run it down a container. Mm. W- which today you would think, well, why on earth is that a problem? Mm. Well, what, you know, what is that a solution to? But back in back then, mm. it was solving a real problem, and without people like them. We wouldn't be doing the kind of the, the sort of CSS work
0: that we're doing today. Okay, let's talk about the podcast. You, you're you're an avid podcaster. You put out a podcast. Is it every week? No, it's every two weeks now. Every the two weekly weeks. schedule was getting too
1: much. Right. And who's your who's your co-host again? We don't have a I don't have a regular co-host now. Oh. It, I started off. This is back at the beginning of. 2013 with Anna Debenham that's right and we had this idea that we would do a podcast about business you know creative businesses mm. about accounting maybe or you know invoicing or contracts and that kind of stuff um, and Anna was the serious one and I was the one that just you know, provided the banter I suppose um, and then after about 30 episodes Anna decided that she didn't really want to do it anymore Right. so uh, I had to make the decision about whether to keep it going and we actually had some sponsor commitments at the time so I didn't I wasn't in a position to just stop it. right? Um, so actually, we just changed the format. And for the next year, I had like a rolling series of co-hosts. Right. So we have regular people, people like Laura Kalbag and uh, Brendan Dawes. And, you know, a few others that would kind of be on every few weeks rather than doing, rather than doing an interview. I did not want to do, like, an interview show. I think mm. there's, there's plenty of brilliant ones, and, and I didn't want mine to be the same. Um, and then, yeah, so we, we carried it up, and we, we got until the end of last year, under 2014, up to episode 100. Wow. Um, which, was, which was pretty good going. Yeah, I didn't know whether I was going to carry it on after that.
0: And so now it's fortnightly.
1: Now it's fortnightly, and what we've decided to do, I asked a few people, because, you know, I might moan about user experience people, but, you know, I do a bit of research. And I did ask listeners about which episodes they preferred, and a few people mentioned some of the doubles where we had actually had me and two guests, mm-hmm. um, particularly some of the the film reviews or the film specials that we do. Because um, it's not just about business now. You know, the unfinished business tag is really about still having things left to talk about mm. and it's less and less and less about business now you know we haven't mentioned the contract or bank accounts or anything in months um, but we do talk about Doctor Who quite a lot on Planet <laughs> of the Apes and people said you know oh, I really like the episode that you did with you know Brendan and, and Jeremy Keith for example talking about Planet of the Apes so I thought well why don't we just do that every week or every two weeks so now I try to pair people up and we have like a three way thing and it's been brilliant. I've had some really good pairings over the last few weeks. Um, I just put out one with Stephen Hay and Trent Walton talking about designing in a browser and design workflow. Um, I don't know when this is going to come out, but we're, re- we're going to release one with Jeffrey Zeldman and Dan Mall talking about mm. art direction and creativity in a couple of weeks. And these have been some really, really good shows. Um, so it is, it is kind of webby-focused and creative-focused, but along the way we talk about all kinds of stuff.
0: So one of the things I did want to touch on is one of the, one of the things I learned from reading your stuff early on in the days, and it's funny, I found myself at conferences talking to a whole bunch of web designers who were continually trying to shove round content from a client into a square hole that they'd designed in their theme. And I kept saying, why do you do that? Why don't you just get the content first and you know design from the inside out, like Andy Clark says to do? Because that was one of the first things I picked up on. And one of the the overwhelming feedback I got was, "Well, you, we can't get content from clients." What, what is your like your number one tip for getting content from clients before you start designing? I can see Sue, <laughs> <laughs> Sue laughing in the again. laughing in the background. <laughs> yeah, um, th- my number one tip
1: for getting content from clients is write at your bloody self. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, because. <clears throat> You cannot expect somebody that runs an engineering company or an accountancy firm or, you know, sells pension products or health and safety inspections to write good advertising copy for the web or anywhere else. Why would you expect that? Um, So this idea that we should just design beautiful containers and then expect somebody to produce the content Mm. to go in there is is ridiculous. Now, okay, that's for the kind of clients I work with, I'm sure. That if we're talking about, you know, a larger organization, perhaps with, you know, a content team, then it's going to be a completely different matter. But a lot of the clients that we work with are not like that. You know, Mm. they're busy running their businesses Mm. and the website is something which, um, you know, they obviously want to succeed, but they're not sure how to make work for them. So we spend a huge amount of time now working on content for people. In fact, it's one of the directions that I want the business to go in, mm. You know, because my interest is much more in kind of advertising and what we're selling and the message and everything else. And that means often that you know we need to write stuff, at least we need to edit them. So if you can't write it yourself because you don't know about health and safety inspections or pension planning, the best thing to do I've found is to spend a couple of hours actually interviewing the client. Yeah. You know, asking them some questions, um, you know, with your sort of content strategy in mind. Ask them the questions, and they'll speak to you and describe things in a way which is much more sort of reader-friendly than if you were to sit them down with a blank piece of paper and say, tell me about your pension product. Because then they go into, our pension product is the best in the world, and and it's... you're not going to want to do it.
0: So yeah. that actually works quite well for us. Yeah. Excellent. That is great advice. Write it yourself. Um, do you have – so your podcast was sponsored at one point by Gather Content, right? No. No. Oh, it wasn't. Oh, but you mentioned Gather Content on the podcast at some point. No. No. No, oh, I got that wrong.
1: Actually, uh, gather content, yeah, I'm thinking, actually, sorry. Yeah, we have to edit this bit out because yes, they did sponsor. That. Do that bit again because I was. <laughs> I'm getting mixed up between campaign monitor and ah, gather right, content. Yeah, 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 it is.
0: Oh, no. yeah. That's right. We'll do it again and we'll just leave it in. So, so, so at one point, gather content sponsored your podcast, right? Yes. So I've used Gather Content in the past. Um, uh, So the question was, do you have, and I suppose you have to say Gather Content now because they were sponsoring the podcast, but do you have a favourite tool for collecting content from clients?
1: No, not particularly. Um, I mean, we'll use all manner of different things. I mean, we'll use that. We might use just Google Docs. Um, What we tend to do is we tend to set up a shared Dropbox with clients as well. So we'll set up a project folder and inside there will be a place where we put our stuff and a place where they'll put their stuff and there'll be like a handover folder. So anything that goes into there is just for kind of conversation. And, yeah, we just get clients to put a lot of stuff into into Dropbox.
0: Excellent. Talk to me about Planet of the Apes.
1: I love Planet of the Apes. (laughs) No, okay, so I don't just love Planet of the Apes. I do actually love apes in general. Right. So I am a huge, huge fan. If you can be a fan of gorillas, it's like liking gorillas on Facebook. How pathetic does that sound? Um, but I do like gorillas a lot. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were just talking about this. We spent a day at Taronga oh, yeah. Zoo in Sydney the other day. And we may actually go up to Melbourne Zoo oh, cool. one day this week um, because they've got a little baby gorilla that's just been born. And, um, and these things are really special. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're not doing enough to, to protect those guys. Mm. And it was interesting. Um, I'm actually gonna, I haven't done it yet, but I'm actually going to write to Tim Cook because mm-hmm. I think you'd be interested in this. There's a particular mineral. Um, I think they called it. They called it cobalt. I can't remember now. Something like that. Coltan. Coltan. That was it. Coltan, which is this this mineral, which is they they add to mobile phones. It's probably one of the only uses I think for for, for this particular mineral. And it's only found in Central Africa. So the only place where all of our phones get this mineral from is a very very crucial part of. Uh, of of Central Africa, in particular, um, the Virunga National Park, which borders Rwanda and Uganda and uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. And in fact, um, the Congolese government is talking about redrawing the boundaries of the national park to allow mineral rights and mining to happen inside the only place on the world where 800 mountain gorillas still live. Wow. I mean, how can that even be possible? Mm. I mean, surely there must be some way in which we can make mobile phones without this particular mineral. I and mean, I know that, you know, they have these recycling programs at the zoo where they say, well, you know, if you recycle your own phones, then, then you know, we'll have less of a reliance on stuff they dig out of the ground. But we all know that shit's not going to work. Mm. You know, we all know that mining companies are going to want to exploit whatever they can dig out of the ground. Um, and it's, and it's, it's very, very sad. And how people can actually even contemplate
0: mining inside the only place in the world where these creatures exist is just beyond me mm. well it's, I mean, it's a you know a um a matter close to our heart here in australia the great barrier reef uh, which is one of the you know great wonders of the world i'm not sure if it's one of the seven but it is certainly one of the great wonders of the world is is, is under threat because of uh uh coal seam gas mining and a whole bunch of mining activity going on the, the queensland coast so it's definitely a, a matter close to our heart here in australia one of the questions i've got for you is um You've brought so much of your passion for for apes into your brand, and so much of your personality into your brand, and and I see that so rarely. Where you know, I mean, your brand is you. It, it, it is pretty much Andy Clark that's built that brand, and so much of your personality is in it. Was there a time where you where you thought? I mean, I can even see a little ape hanging off your MacBook power adapter over there. Um, <clears throat> was there a time where you thought? you know this is going to ostracize some potential clients well you know, it, it
1: sometimes it acts as a filter i mean you know you look at the header on the current website and i'll show you the new one it's not for public release yet right. but we actually do Ooh. have a new header um which if i can find the time to actually engineer it into the new into the site we'll we'll get it out there um but yeah sometimes those things Act as a filter, you know. And we say to clients, "I'm oh, you know you weren't put off by the crazy apes that are on the site right now," and um, and if they say, "You know, no, we thought it was, you know, we thought it was fun," and that's exactly what. You know, yeah. we want them to do and that the headers on the site we've done for a couple of years now and they serve two purposes they're supposed to be personality you know we're, we're selling to potential clients but there's also a kind of a, a bit of a you know a geek cred easter egg type stuff there's always a little bit responsive gag in there somewhere mm-hmm. which kind of adds a bit of fun but i just think it's important to have personality um john hegarty who's the um one of the founders of bbh Bartle Bogle, Hegarty, the advertising agency, he said, you know, your work's got to stand for something, you know, it needs to have personality. Mm. Um, and, you know, we don't really see that um, mm. as much on the web. Um, you know, and I don't want to criticize other designers or other studios, but when you do look at a lot of portfolio sites, you know, if I see another. Uh, mm. Another portfolio that features usually Apple equipment, yeah. you know, where you're showing off a site on an iMac and an I- and a laptop and mm-hmm. an iPad and a phone or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, I know that's a kind of you know, yeah. a convention guilty yeah. or trope. Um, <laughs> so I just think it's important to have some personality because you know the experience of working with somebody on a job is as important as the work that you get out the other end Mm. in fact if the experience isn't good then you're not going to get good work yeah um so i just think it's important to have that kind of personality and i do worry sometimes that you know i don't want the brand to be just about me because you know there are other people in the business Mm. but you know it is what it is right now i mean i agonized and agonized um about whether we would do apes for the last header um And it's probably lasted
0: a bit longer because we've been so busy. It's lasted a bit longer than I would normally have liked. Excellent. Well, I'm a big fan. Um, Final question I have to ask. Have you ever had Paul Weller around for tea? (laughs) No. And do you know what? I think he'd be a right grumpy
1: bastard (laughs) as well, to be honest. I've only ever seen Weller twice in concert. One was at the De Montfort Hall in Leicester in the UK in about 1979. I think it was on their last tour and he stormed off at the end this was he was playing with the jam right. and he stormed <laughs> off um like two songs before the end because something was up and he wouldn't come on for an encore and then my son and i alex we saw him two or three years ago uh, play in Manchester, and again he refused to come on for an encore. Right. And he didn't speak to the audience between songs. And I just think he'd be a right moody git, to be honest. <laughs> Brilliant musician, and I admire him immensely. But yeah, yeah not one of those people that we you know. When people say, "Who would you invite round for your perfect dinner party?" Right. wouldn't include Weller.
0: Not Paul Weller. No, wouldn't include Weller. <laughs> Andy Clark, thank you very much for stopping in while you're here in Australia. Pleasure, mate. Uh, sound rolling, camera rolling. That's my little laugh. That's your thing. The, there plan. you go, that's there it. Go. That's Ready? Three.
1: One, two, three. See, people are going to think that it's some kind of medieval thigh nice laughing.
0: like <laughs> adventure. That's totally going to be the pre-roll for this show. <laughs> Me and Andy Clark just whacking our thighs. Who would you invite around to your perfect dinner party? See, this is what this is in the outtake section. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's okay. right.
1: There <laughs> we go. Who would I invite around to my... In the party. Uh, No, I'm not really sure. What about John Lydon would be quite cool. Oh, yeah? Yeah. um, I reckon Morrissey could be a laugh, actually, out of context.
0: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I reckon Morrissey could be a laugh. You better shake hands again because I might have talked about that. Okay, sure. It's all part of the outtakes, anyway. Andy Clark, thanks for popping in. (laughs) How many times do you have to do this? Thanks for popping in. (laughs) Thanks for popping in.